I realized if I wasn't doing something, it wasn't because I didn't have time. It wasn't because I didn't have discipline. It was because I didn't have necessity. And in 2020, it reinvented what necessity looked like for everybody because life as you know it completely changed in many ways for many of us. In this episode, we got an amazing author, celebrated author. He's actually been a reporter, interviewed many greats. He's been on MTV Canada, Breakfast Television, CTV News, a TEDx speaker. Uh, and like I said, celebrated author, came up with the book, Every Conversation Counts. Riaz Megji, we got real deep. This is going to be the handbook to survive, but you have to read this book. A little surprise for you guys through the interview. So make sure you watch the whole interview and I can't wait to hear your feedback. Enjoy. So Riaz, thank you so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for the warm introduction and kudos, man. I was telling you before we started rolling, uh, the power of mindset has been such an important transformation over the past couple of years. So I love the space you're creating and the fact we get to uh, just jam in this space and share some ideas. Absolutely, man. You know what? I feel like we're twins here too, because I'm wearing a hat here, but it must be our, our faith blood here that we get the we get the George Clooney <laughs> look here going, but I'm wearing a hat today. Hey, so. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the gray hair club for men. Welcome. It is. We should start Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, you know, on my podcast with Tim Story, and he was saying, oh yeah, he's a little uncomfortable. You got a couple of gray hairs. I'm like, a couple of gray hairs. I go look at me. He goes, oh yeah, we got the George Clooney thing going. <laughs> <laughs> work it, man. Work it. Awesome. Exactly. Um, okay. First things first, man. Um, before we get right to your book, maybe you can share some background about yourself. Um, and then I, I really want to do a deep dive in this book. And for those of you that are listening to this, you have to get this book. I'm going to put this link in the podcast notes. I'm going to put it in my YouTube channel notes. And you know what? Screw it. I'm going to order 10 copies of this book and you comment and you ask a great question. I will send you a book. There we go. Uh, amazing, man. Thank you. Thank, thanks for the support. Yeah. I mean, th this book has been years uh, in the making. And for the past two decades, I I've had the, you know, the privilege and opportunity to interview people for a living on radio and television. I mean, you mentioned some of the outlets and it was really, I would say four days before uh, the TEDx talk I gave at TEDx SFU, which is where I went to university. I mean, I was a finance grad, uh, a, a smiley family roots, you yeah. know, they come from East Africa, immigrant family says, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a dentist, It'd go that safe route. Yeah. And in that moment, coming back to SFU and kind of sharing um, a, a space for 20 minutes to talk about your life and your journey, uh, I had a friend ask me, hey, what's the title of your talk going to be? And any good presentation, any good talk starts with a big idea. And those three words, every conversation counts, really stood out to me because I asked myself, well, yeah, why do I wake up at 3.30 in the morning? And this was at the time I was working for Breakfast Television Vancouver and interview people for a living. Mm -hmm. And it really made me look back at my time in university, even though I studied finance, I love the art of engagement and presentation and communication. Mm -hmm. I then went into the media uh, business because I love the art of presentation and connecting through the camera, engaging an audience. Mm -hmm. But my entire life has been based on this value of that we are always one conversation away from changing our lives for better and for worse. And I had this idea for the book, it documented stories for years, documented ideas from leaders when they shared something that really resonated. Mm -hmm. And it was just my own personal fear and perhaps imposter syndrome of becoming an author. And what if it fails was the reason I just held back from actually doing this. Yeah. And then when the pandemic hit, which I think 2020 is such a year that defined all of us, the greatest thing that I learned when, especially in the mindset space that I know you work in is that when I looked at my life, I realized if I wasn't doing something, it wasn't because I didn't have time. It wasn't because I didn't have discipline. It was because I didn't have necessity. And in 2020, it reinvented what necessity looked like for everybody because life as you know it completely changed in many ways for many of us. So this message of and doubling down on combating isolation and loneliness and emphasizing the power of human connection has been a passion for two decades. And my goal with this book is just to help serve people, whether it's in sales, whether it's professionally, whether it's personally, that they can just establish relationships in such deeper ways, especially coming out of this pandemic. Absolutely. And, and, and what's, I think it's remarkable about your book because your book was released in February of this year. And, you know, and by then we were already 
12, uh, 14 months into this whole, you know, I call it the world, the, our third, our world war three, which the whole world's at war with something. And, uh, and I like how you say what COVID did was it was a defining moment. And I think it's a defining moment for humanity. I think it's a defining moment for human, human, for all of us, because I look at 2020 as the year of choice. You were either going to be a victim or you're going to be the victor. Um, so your book really highlighted that. And you talk about isolation in there. And I mean, I've made some notes about that. Um, you talk about the social pandemic, uh, which I thought was very powerful. Like, I mean, I look at social, like the pandemic aspect or social pandemic. And my viewpoint of social pandemic was, is, you know, the, human, humans have this necessity to, to socialize, right? I mean, they have the connectivity or bonding or what have you. But I look at social pandemic as a little bit different. And what I looked at is, is I look at social media, for example, as a weapon of mass destruction. It's like a nuclear weapon. When you use it, if you have it, it's powerful. If you use it, the world's done, right? Uh, and I think you, you talk about uh, social pandemic and I'd like you to just maybe share some thoughts on with respect to the social pandemic in your eyes. When I introduced the concept of a social pandemic and we look at what 2020 represented for many of us mm -hmm. and that necessity that, that may have popped up in new ways for us, the big idea uh, that stood out to me was that pandemics don't change your identity. They, they reveal it. Yes. I and love the great, that. The, the great reveal was that human connection is not an option. Yes. It, it truly is a necessity and it sends the same stress signals to our brain as thirst and hunger. And how we were able to connect was from a distance using a tool like social media. And for years, we've seen it evolve through various platforms, uh, whether it's, you know, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok. Uh, you know, I appreciate TikTok for the joy it brings, but it can be a double-edged sword simply because of how we use it as, as you're articulating. And the point I, I like to encourage for people is if you look at how you've used social media, if you're afraid of it or seeing it as that dangerous tool, how can you use it and approach it with creation over consumption? Mm -hmm. And when I say that is creating uh, opportunities uh, for curiosity, for dialogue, look what you're doing with your podcast, inviting guests and inspiring different thoughts. This is the good of what social media can do. But if we get caught up in this trap of consumption, where we're in passive mode, consistently just scrolling uh, feeds, liking feeds, not really engaging, then we fall into autopilot mode where social media becomes an active distraction, which then leads to the point of comparison, which is dangerous because then we're just judging everything we're seeing. And then more importantly, we're judging ourselves. Yes. And th that, that falls into the trap of inadequacy and that in itself, if we're consuming more than we're creating, uh, that can create a high level of isolation and ultimately loneliness that impacts us mentally and physically. That is so powerful. So powerful. And it leaves me, I, I mean, I had uh, Bob Berg, the author of The Go-Giver mm. on the podcast as well. And we talk about leading with value. And I think yeah. that's what's, that's, I believe the missing point with people are missing the boat when it comes to the value add of social media is provide value. It's not about taking back because if you're going to be just taking and consuming, like you said, I mean, it's a slippery slope because now that that comparison and all we're doing is going to get more and more isolated. And there's a quote that you have in your book, and I'm going to read this here. It goes, loneliness has always carried with it. It's paradox. Millions of us feel it, but we all, but we each feel it alone. Mm. That is so powerful, man. It, you know, I'm glad that stands out to you because this is such an opportunity to, to talk about this concept of loneliness, of how it shows up in our lives. And I believe well before the pandemic, uh, this was a topic I'd been looking at for years. I mean, in the UK, they appointed a minister of loneliness back in 2018. Uh, Japan has struggled with loneliness over the years. And in fact, because of the pandemic, the suicide rate in Japan went up for the first time in 10 years. So in February of, of this year, 2021, they appointed a minister of loneliness. I mean, these are, these are critical uh, roles that are being filled. And it's a topic because of that stigma and, and shame people could feel of, it's difficult to speak up and say, you know what, I've got nobody to talk to. Yeah. And the health research from Cigna in the States, they've been watching this closely. And I think some of their research of the main causes of loneliness, if you're thinking, well, am I lonely as a person? Uh, they look at some of the criteria of, you know, lacking meaningful social support, having a, a negative perception of the relationships that exist in your life, uh, poor physical and mental health, 
and then ultimately a poor work-life balance. And when you think about all of those factors, especially during the pandemic and now a hybrid work setup, loneliness is a huge topic we need to be talking about, we need to be addressing if we're going to create cultures of inclusiveness, loyalty, and above all, trust. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's powerful. Um, in my research, uh, and I was looking at some of the some of the names that you've interviewed, uh, Tom Cruise, Jennifer Lopez, I got Gary Vee, of course. The one that stood out to me was very, very interesting. And I'm going to put you on the spot here, if that's okay. Yeah. Being, a, being of, of Ismaili Muslim faith, you interviewed Salman Rushdie, who was the author of Satanic Verses. Mm-hmm. Was there, like... As, 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 an inch, as a reporter, as an interviewer, do you just have to become stoic and just keep it as business? Or like, how was that? I mean, and, and maybe you have no opinion of it. I mean, just be honest. Yeah, as a reporter, when you have uh, a polarizing figure uh, and celebrated author like Salman Rushdie, the goal is always to uh, refrain from judgment and, and ask questions. And one of the questions I remember asking Salman is, how do we get to a point of productive disagreement And that's why I double down on the habit of how we can all be assertively empathetic. Mm. And from a conversation with Salman and any polarizing figure, I think the important, if somebody were to say, well, Rias, what's the secret? How do you make every conversation count, especially at a time when values differ? We've seen, you know, political strife. uh, We've seen racial uh, Mm -hmm. polarization. I think the biggest thing any single one of us can do professionally or personally in all of our conversations is to acknowledge someone's truth before we speak our own. Mm, wow. And even if, if, even if we disagree with what they've written or what they've put out to the world, if we acknowledge them and then start asking questions to dissect and, and try and gain that understanding, what that can do is allow us to just disagree in productive ways. And, you know, so some of the things when I work with leaders is, is I, as I encourage, you know, brainstorm for questions, not answers. Mm. no no answers in this upcoming hour everybody just throw out a question and don't worry about judgment let's just put all the questions on the board of what stands out of how an idea could be challenged and i think that's what leads to healthy dialogue and this point of 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 what what is happening with isolation and loneliness is sometimes we're fearing saying what we're truly thinking because if we release our truth given the way our culture is right now Mm. we could alienate ourselves and lose our sense of belonging, which is one of the greatest fears we have as, as human beings. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's, and I, I love that. I mean, and really, I love how you talk about the assertiveness uh, of uh, assertively being, uh, sorry, be assertively empathetic. We're going to talk about your five habits of human connection here in a second. Um, but I like how you brought that in. Um, a question that I just had to ask you this because you put this in your book, and I'm going to turn the tables. What is the most important conversation? you've had in your life? Well, I I can tell you in the book, I document a conversation uh, with a gentleman by the name of Latviel Ganduri, who was a business consultant. And when I was 18 years old, uh, maybe it was like 20. Now I'm 41 now. Like it's all a blur. It's gray (laughs) hair. I'm an old man. My memory's going. This was like early 2000s. And I remember, as I mentioned earlier, going to SFU, I was at a conference in Quebec City. And at this conference, I was facilitating some sessions on stage for an organization. It was called ISEC, which facilitates international student exchange. And this is final semester of my business degree. So the plan was to become an investment broker. And Lafayette was the co-chair of this conference. And he, I had the privilege of having him sit in on some of the sessions that I did, because when that conference ended, he had pulled me aside and he said, hey, man, look, you're, you're at a point in your life where you're going to finish these studies. He said, don't go into this. Mm-hmm. Like you have something to contribute in the presentation space of how you engage an audience. Go after that. Chase that. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the safe part of me is saying, uh, yeah, well, I come from an Ismaili, you know, South Asian roots here. So if I'm not a doctor, lawyer, dentist, all of that stuff, we're going to have a problem with the parents because yeah. they have expectations how things work. Mm-hmm. And he didn't hesitate with how he challenged me because he said, when are you going to stop playing safe and start living your life? And that always stood out to me because in that moment, I recognized he saw something that I had yet to see in myself. Mm -hmm. And then I made the decision that 
I'm going to go after this. Sure. And I started looking at life completely differently, especially the media landscape, which is very different in the early 2000s of applying. You mentioned Much Music was a runner up in the Much Temp contest. Uh, Z95, 3FM, uh, big radio station in Vancouver, runner up for their sticker spotter contest. But then somebody had told me that MTV Canada had a top 10 video countdown show in Vancouver at the time. And then I just put myself out there, got an internship, and then they gave me a shot. And then I've just always, to this day, maintained this beginner's mindset mm -hmm. of how much can I learn? Because I've always just thrown myself in these arenas where I have no idea what's going on. But I just have this openness and willingness to learn and an idea of what this could look like. So mm -hmm. I credit Lafi back in the early 2000s of the belief he gave me sure. and ultimately the seed he planted. Yeah, it's amazing how those moments or those people, they just come in and serve a purpose in our lives. And it just ultimately just pushed that trajectory. Um, and that's what I'm finding these days as well. It was, uh, I'd mentioned Tim Stories being one of my mentors. And I mean, he is he basically told me to open my mouth and he basically stuck his hand in there, went right into my soul. And he basically took things that I deeply covered up because although they were my aspirations, I was ashamed that they were my aspirations. Cause again, it didn't fit with either society or societal norms. Um, like you say, coming from, you know, Indian, Indian descent, there's different expectations. Um, so it's very, very powerful to really, you know, uh, I, I did an interview with uh, Simrajit Singh. He's one of the top 10 motivational speakers in India. And he, he quotes, uh, I think it's Rumi, um, he's, a, uh, it, he's uh, it's from Sufism and talks about as much as we're looking for our, our purpose, our purpose is looking for us. And it's amazing when those two things collide and you just know, and there's no going back. Uh, you've essentially taken a ceiling and turned it into a new floor. And that's yeah. really powerful, right? So, um, so when we talk about the five habits, actually, um, before we get to this book, I have to ask some certain questions that are my staples for the show. Um, yeah. So I go by the seven two mindset investor and people will ask, what does that seven two actually mean? So the seven two is the worst possible hand in poker. So if I draw a seven and I draw a two in poker, it's the worst possible hand. I want to fold that hand because my likelihood of success is very small. And in life, we can't control the hands that were, that were dealt, but we can control how we play that hand. Is there a moment in your life that you can recall that you were played a bad hand and instead of folding it saying, I'm just going to play this hand. And that ultimately changed where you are today. I don't know if it's a bad hand, but as you describe like these moments that could break you, but ultimately make you. Mm -hmm. What's top of mind for me is October 2019 when I got a call that uh, my father's heart had stopped. Mm. And I was at a conference in San Diego. I was with my brother. And it was the most terrifying call of my life. And my mom was panicking. I could hear paramedics in the back trying to revive him. And in that moment, I could just feel I'm like, he had had open heart surgery two years earlier. I just... I just felt I'm like, this is his time. I, I think our lives have, have changed permanently. And by the time we got on a flight, flew back to Vancouver, this is pre-pandemic, months before the pandemic, seeing him on life support and a doctor saying, yeah, his heart stopped, his brain went without oxygen. Um, the only decision you have to make is when to pull the plug mm -hmm. because there's no activity in his brain. I had up until that point been fortunate that I never lost anyone close to me, but that moment destroyed me. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I learned about this moment, and you know, people talk about you could control what you can control. There were many elements that we had to do afterwards. He didn't have a will. He had an aviation business that we had to learn about and we had to sell. And then the pandemic hit and the plan of, you know, working on the speaking circuit completely disappeared. And I think when we talk about necessity and time and discipline, it just, it, it reminded me that time is the most precious commodity. And when you lose someone like that and it rocks you to your foundation, uh, for me, it created such an urgency where I looked at every single day differently. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, I operated every day with rituals instead of reactions. And what I mean by that is like, I would wake up and I would think, 
how am I going to make the most uh, out of today? What am I doing to accomplish something today? As opposed to I'll get to that next week, mm. which is why, you know, that the, the imposter syndrome with the book, all of that stuff kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. You lose somebody, you realize that could be me tomorrow. And if I was on my deathbed, what is one thing I always wanted to do? And that was to get that book out. So I, I think some of the greatest words my dad ever gave me was uh, these words were, you know, hours before I got married in, in, Hawaii with with my wife Lori and we were talking about marriage and he's a guy that never really talked about his feelings but he reminded me that the experiences that we live through good or bad are all temporary mm-hmm. and to learn uh you know from those lows to you know cherish those highs as much as you can but they're all going to be temporary but he said your potential is permanent so when I lost him those words stood out to me those words stand out to me to this day they got me through the pandemic but it, ju- it just reminded me no matter what we're going through for now two words for now uh stay present with me and it's because of his guidance his belief and his support got me to this point but uh, that breaking point taught me urgency and the value of just for now anything can change and just controlling what we can control is is of utmost importance every day Riaz, I want to say thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't easy, um, but I want to say thank you so much because that is very, very powerful for now. Thanks, man. I love that. Um, Your book, Every Conversation Counts, The Five Habits of Human Connection That Build Extraordinary Relationships. And I love how you broke them down and you have the five. Uh, So we're going to go through them, which I think is, is so powerful. Listen without distraction. You said something, you, you wrote something, and I'm like, how, where did he get that from? I'm the one who said that before, which is, you know, listening. You also listening with your eyes. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I get like, we, we have a connect. Cause I've said that before people is listen without distraction. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Listening with your eyes is so key. And it was, it, it, it was something of great value, especially in the green room uh, when you do live television interviews, because on a format, and I'll give you an example, at Breakfast Television Vancouver at the time, you, you never know what somebody's going through when they, when they come into that room. You might think, okay, they're here to promote their book, their movie, their story, their, their, their event they have going on, but you don't know what's going on in their life. So the first thing I would do is kind of take stock of the ener- the physical energy of how they're carrying themselves when they're in that room. Mm-hmm. And one of the first questions I commonly ask them is, what's on your mind? Mm-hmm. And with this listening without distraction pieces, I would listen with my eyes. I would do all of the preparation for the guest. You know, I read that book. I watched that movie. I'd listen to that album. Uh, I'd read that blog that they've done. And, and I champion the idea of over-prepared to improvise. But the improvisation from my part, if I'm contributing to the space of the conversation through curiosity, is to step one, ask what's on your mind. And then I would listen with my eyes because the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth when you say what's on your mind, that's their priorities. And when they speak to their priorities, I'm seeing, are they carrying themselves with confidence? Are they a little afraid? You know, do they look disturbed in some way? Maybe something's happened in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I found that piece is so valuable to start to create a, a space of psychological safety for them. So they know, hey, this person, Riaz is interviewing me. Riaz actually cares about me. Mm-hmm. And the idea that after almost 20 years of interviewing people, I still believe the three questions we all ask ourselves the first time we meet somebody as we're trying to differentiate, is this a friend? Is this a foe? The three questions we're asking us are, do, do you care about me? Are you listening to me? And can I trust you? Mm. The work and preparation we do beforehand shows how much we care. The listening is, yes, you know, what they're actually saying to us, but also what we're seeing. And the trust is, is really going first with these moments of vulnerability and sharing real things going on in our lives so they know this is a space that I can open up and share something unique, different, and powerful. Mm. You know, as, um, as you're, you're talking, I'm like, God forbid we never have to go through what we've experienced in the last year and a half with something like COVID. But man, God forbid that happens again. Your book has to be the handbook of how to survive a pandemic. Because Mm. as you're talking and we go through each, each, each five habits, I mean, listen without distraction. We had to listen with our eyes because everybody had masks on. And you could either see the fear in someone's eyes 
or the stress in someone's eyes. And if someone didn't, they were just too distracted. Mm. That's you know? so true, man. That, that's such a great point. And you know, this notion of listening with your eyes of how we read somebody else, you think about how our communication evolved during a pandemic and virtual communication and people presenting virtually. One of, one of the most valuable exercises I recommend when, when I'm working with leaders is to listen with your eyes when you're watching yourself. And if they're saying, well, how do I become a better presenter? How, how do I become more empathetic on camera? You may have a conception of how you show up, but until you watch yourself, like one of the most nerve wracking thing for, things for, for people to do is one, to listen to themselves if, if they've been interviewed or two, to watch themselves in some sort of interview or when they're presented. But if you were to watch your playback, regardless of the context, if it's a meeting, it's a presentation, whatever you do, watch your playback with no audio and listen with your eyes to your own visual, mm -hmm. ask yourself, is that a true authentic version showing up of who you are? Mm -hmm. And I think the, the camera, it mutes emotion. This is a new choreography for connection. So it, it's very, it has been unfamiliar. And I think now there, there's a great sense of familiarity and more comfort with the medium. But listening with your eyes is how you connect with somebody else, but truly how you can connect better with yourself and, and allow the best version of you to show up virtually. I love that. I mean, I thought I was just the crazy one that every, every, uh, con all the content I create, I'm watching it back and forth, studying it. And, you know, my parents are here visiting from out of town and they're like, why are you watching yourself? It's, I'm trying to understand how I can improve. I'm like, no, you, 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 you look good. I'm like, no, it's not good enough. There has to be something more and just the little nuances. But I guess that's, that's why we're high performance individuals. There's always room to improve. Right. Um, that, you know, that, that point is so important and I'm going to double down on that because that that's essential. I'm a big basketball fan that that's like, you're on the court and you're getting your shots in to work on your game. And even in, in, in the broadcast world, after every show, I would sit there and watch the interview mm. and I'd watch the physicality. Uh, I would listen back to the questions. I would listen back to the responses and think, did I create the space for that person to shine? If not, what did I miss? How do I improve that the next time out? Because sometimes you interview somebody multiple times. Sometimes you only get one shot, but if you have a similar theme, maybe you learn something like that. That's such a valuable exercise and kudos to you. And if somebody's watching this and you do that, that's how you get better at the craft. And I think that, you know, someone that doesn't know might think, is this a total narcissist just watching themselves back? Being like, wow, look at me. Exactly. It's like, no, how do you improve this craft? And it's, it's doing that work and watching those subtle uh, nuances uh, that'll just amplify the communication and connection. Well, and you know, it, it's, as you say, basketball, I mean, I just finished reading what I consider to be my autobiography, which is winning by, uh, by Tim Grover. Um, and the reason mm. I say my autobiography, because understanding how toxic winning could be and all the other stuff that comes with it, but, you know, really studies like he coached Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and they would win a championship, but they're in their studying tape the next day. Um, yeah. Most are just already with their with their with their with their buddies and are going to Vegas and getting bottle service. But these are upper echelon and they're studying. I mean, I love Michael Jordan. One of Michael Jordan's quotes that always resonates with me is like, you know, I think a reporter asked him is like, you always nail that shot. And he goes, yeah, but you guys don't see how many times I actually missed that shot. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it's just very very powerful. And like you said, I love what you said. It's mastering our craft, right? It takes time. Yeah, it takes time make your small talk bigger that I love that. Let's just get right to business. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's why I looked at that. So I just love that because it removes the bullshit from any conversation. Let's just, you want to, you want to, you know, dive into that a little bit. When, when, when people hear the, the, the word small talk, it's like they dread it. They're just like, Oh no, man, I, I, I don't want to go out. I don't want to do it. Yeah, small talk is is uh, I think just a perception that has blocked us. That small talk has just become this defense mechanism to prevent us mm -hmm. from the embarrassment of just getting emotional in front of someone we don't know. That's right. why we talk about the weather. That's why we talk about yeah, how many vaccinations you got, what's going on. <laughs> Your COVID became the big small talk in the past year. The fact sure. people are talking about weather again, I'm like, great, we're making progress. Exactly. But if we shift our perception about what small talk can represent, uh, I think there's going to be a powerful flow of connection that can happen in our lives. Because the, the challenge I see with small talk is that because we're 
preventing ourselves from getting emotional in front of people, small talk is just inf meaningless informational transactions happening. It's they're, they're throwaway moments. Yeah. And what I encourage people to do if they want to make their small talk bigger is to think less information and more emotion. Mm. And the best way, the best way to tap into emotion is to really explore relationships with people. I mean, people will talk about their career, they'll talk about their health, but emotion truly lies in relationships. And I always credit the late uh, psychiatrist Gordon Livingston for the work he did with happiness and his happiness equation. And the three questions or three areas that he focused on led to three questions for me that stood out. If I have no context of the person in front of me, but I'm given five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and the goal is, hey, I wanna connect with this person. Mm -hmm. Think about when we're back to networking events, Livingston found the happiest people have someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. Hmm. And I thought, those are such three valuable areas that if you start asking people these questions of, hey, what, what are you looking forward to this summer? Mm -hmm. You're going to hear something personal. Tell me about someone you love right now. Tell me about what are you creating? What's lighting that fire? These are the types of questions that are going to ignite and elicit positive emotion. And I think that is the starting point of how we truly make our small talk bigger. <laughs> Love this. Um, this. This one was really powerful. And, you know, we were talking about social media before and, you know, and it can go over how people are flexing and all other stuff. And it's, I'm not sure if I want to read what the habit is first, but you have a very strong uh, statement in there. Maybe I'll start with the statement. I'll, I'll direct it back to the habit. Real connection isn't about perfection. Real connection comes from the ability to embrace perfection. And that, that third habit you talk about is put aside your perfect persona. Mm. Yeah. How do we practice realness instead of practicing perfection? That's one of the challenges of social media. Do you post it if it doesn't look good? Do you post it if your day sucked? And I've seen so many more real and vulnerable posts this past year. It's inspired me because as soon as you see the realness, and if we look at the, the, the power of personal stories you can share with somebody, something powerful happens in the struggle. You build connection. If somebody is telling you a story, like my formula for storytelling is struggle, conflict, and resolution. The importance of leading with that struggle is that we are wired to root for the underdog. Mm -hmm. And one of the tips of putting aside our perfect persona as a leader is going first. Because right now what's happening as people are being onboarded remotely, think about your first day on the job. You started, you have anxiety, but you haven't even met your teammates in person. Mm -hmm. So you're a little reluctant to share, mm -hmm. but if you're the leader in the room guiding that conversation and you go first and talk about, look, this is how difficult my first day was. Here's what I screwed up. Here's the anxiety I have. Immediately, you have created a space of safety and relief for those other persons or those other people that, that might be feeling alienated or isolated that I can't share this. Otherwise, I'm going to lose respect on the team. Mm -hmm. So I'm encouraging uh, groups if you're the leader in the group, go first, yeah. share what's truly going on, but, but make sure the people in the room are ready to absorb uh, that truth. And there's a great term in psychology known as the Prattfall effect, which doubles down on the idea of conveying credibility before vulnerability. Because, and that's why it's valuable for the leaders to go first, because as the leader, you have credibility, you've established your authority. And when you go first with your vulnerability, it draws people closer because it humanizes you, even though you're the person people look up to. Mm -hmm. But if people are already questioning your competence to begin with, I mean, think about why we trust people. Mm -hmm. we, we, we look at competence. Can they do the job? We look at intention. Are they there to serve? Uh, we look at integrity. Are they operating with some sort of ethical code? Mm -hmm. If we don't have a sense of competence or trust in their competence, if they overshare, it'll almost distance us from the, the, the person altogether instead of drawing us closer. So the ideas of going first are crucial, but really establishing uh, you know, a sense of safety as a leader that you're that point of authority and credibility. And that's how we can powerfully uh, really connect in the struggle. I love that. Number four, be assertively empathetic. Um, yeah, I mean, 
We, we kind of touched on this one, and this one really builds on acknowledging someone's truth before you speak your own. But to, to, to elaborate a little bit more, if there is a disagreement, this really involves, if some, some, someone might be listening to this saying assertively empathetic, like can these two words even coexist together? Mm -hmm. The encouragement here is to ask ourselves, what gets in the way when, in terms of your reaction when you disagree with someone? Because we're very quick to jump in and interrupt. Maybe we disagree with someone and then we emotionally shut ourselves off. We've stopped listening. We give unsolicited advice. But the idea of being assertively empathetic is truly the sense of acknowledgement, truly the sense of discovery before we dismiss someone when we disagree with them. Mm -hmm. And putting that relationship first where we've acknowledged, we've, we've validated and confirmed that we've understood their point of position and then introducing the logic of focusing on what we can agree on. Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be a sense of common ground, but our curiosity is really going to be the driver of how we find those areas of common ground when it looks like we're on two ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging them first, asking the questions of where you're at, what do you really need? What's the real challenge here for you? And then focusing on you know, what you can agree on, that allows us to be on the same side of an obstacle instead of, hey, it's me versus you. And then it, it's a full out confrontation instead of collaboration. You know, as, as you're explaining this, and I love the way you've, 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 you've elaborated on that. So before I, you know, this is in my, in my previous life, when I was doing high ticket sales in the medical industry, um, I did a lot of work with uh, human factors training and it was all surrounding around patient safety. And one of the tasks I, I had was there was a lot of parallels. I mean, the medical world would say there's a lot of parallels, but there's, there's not looking at commercial aviation and looking at healthcare because commercial aviation is deemed one of the safest industries in the world. And yet healthcare is deemed one of the unsafest industries in the world. And I remember I had to watch a simulation of a real life plane crash and it was the voice recording out of the black box. Mm. And it was highlighted that when stuff was going bad, the pilot and the co-pilot were talking to each other, but they weren't communicating because they weren't listening to each other. There was no assertive empathy going back and forth. And all that created was more chaos and ultimately led to the, the lives lost. So um, as you're talking about this, and it's again, the power of communication and being assertively empathetic. I mean, I think and I love that that paradox there because one is coming on a more of an aggressive side, but the other side is coming from like you're you're forcing yourself to be empathetic, which I love. Yeah, we really assertively need to check ourselves right now because the reaction is what we can control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in those high stakes moments, as we're panicking and then reacting, we're defending ourselves. That's why we're reacting like that and trying to prove somebody else is wrong. Sure. But in that moment, that's, that's such an opportunity to dissect. I mean, you asked me that question about, you know, Salman Rushdie, the, the, the moment there is try to understand the mindset mm. of what is the motivation behind sharing this. Yes. And then there's a creative process, whether you, I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but if you acknowledge it, it can allow us to just think in different ways and understand how people operate and allow us to get to outcomes where there's potential respect and understanding, not necessarily agreement, but I understand why you did what you did. And I, I, I believe we need more of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I love this. I love your, the, the fifth habit of human connection. I just love this. And it reminds me of a quote by Maya Angelou, which basically says, people will remember what you say to them, but they're gonna remember how you made them feel. And mm -hmm. your fifth habit of human connection is make people feel famous. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, a lot of people quote Maya. I'm going to show you some. I always keep like words. Here's one of my favorite Maya quotes right here. You can't read my chicken scratches. I could have been a doctor with writing like this, but <laughs> one of my favorite Maya quotes is never make someone a priority when all you are to them is an option. And oh. that, wow. that, that echoes the sentiment of, of what you're saying about, you know, making people feel special here, making them feel valued. And this past year has really taught us what we need most, especially when we're struggling is we need a champion. Yeah. We need a cheerleader in our corner. That's going to say, Hey, uh, Mark, I, I see what you're doing with this podcast. 
Mm-hmm. I see how you're leveling people up with the mindset. I appreciate the fact, Mark, you have several coaches, not just one, because you understand uh, the power of getting a coach and being coachable. Mm-hmm. And I, I recognize the impact you have for your audience. And, and these notions of appreciation, like psychologist William James said something that resonated with me too, that the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. Mm-hmm. But what we're missing in our appreciation, how we're not making people feel famous, is we're pulling up with the easy appreciation that exists. If you see something you like, the easy thing to do is just say, hey, great job. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, that, that was really thoughtful what you did. But that is such a missed opportunity to lift somebody up. And what I encourage people to do is to practice specificity with your praise, to be more intentional with your praise and think about the fact that if there was something that you thought was great, double down on what that was, Mm -hmm. how that connected to maybe the purpose of an organization, the values, how that impacted you personally, uh, how how you can use your praise and jump in right away and let that person know rather than wait till a big talk. Like having all of these things, specifics, urgency, purpose, making it personal, Mm -hmm. that's how you're truly going to use your words to teach, inspire, and lift people up. And I hope when people look at that, I'm not talking about making people feel famous in in, in a fleeting, superficial way. I'm talking about honoring the contribution that they have made and reminding them the power of what they have to offer. Sure. Man, this is so powerful. This is so powerful, man. I'm just, man, this is, I'm just loving this. Um, you know, what scares me, Riaz, is the future. And although I'm an optimist, I, I truly am an optimist, but what scares me is the future of conversations and how people are communicating. Um, I feel like we're the underdogs, the, us old dogs are the underdogs and fighting. And maybe it's, it's just a season in life where we're, people have to go through and then they realize that time is a finite resource and to get back to the basics. But, you know, what does the future hold for conversation when you look at things and and the way technology is going? I think the most important question uh, to ask ourselves with our relationships is not, hey, what is the world going to look like in 2030, 2040? It's how do we create a space for meaningful human connection, no matter where we are and what the context is. And if we reflect on even these habits I've shared, other ideas of conversation, of connection, the most important thing is not forgetting about the basics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the phrase that gets overused and it's, a, it's, it's, you know, I'll say it's cliche to say, it, but I think it's values that common sense isn't necessarily common practice. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these ideas of communicating, they're not complicated but they get overlooked because uh, looking at where we are and where we're going, we're living in a culture of convenience. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic, I believe it taught us how quickly we can adapt and how fast things are gonna move. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, efficiency can be the barrier. It can be the enemy of connection. So I encourage when it comes to conversation and communication and the point that, that you're addressing is how do we break out of autopilot mode and maintain a sense of being intentional in any given conversation we're gonna have. Because at any point, something powerful could happen. Mm -hmm. Like one of the greatest things that in pieces of advice that was given to me early on in my career when I was like a sponge trying to figure out, I have no broadcast background, but now I have a gig on TV. How do I do this? How do Mm -hmm. I get comfortable? And uh, I think his name was Chris Nelson. He used to, you mentioned much music. He used to host a show called Much West. Okay, and I haven't seen, I haven't seen Chris since he shared this advice. There was a conference, New Music West in Vancouver. And I asked him, he'd been on camera for like 15 years. And I said, how long did it take you to get comfortable on camera? And he did not hesitate when he said, look, man, I'm still figuring this out. Yeah. And he's like, the day you get comfortable, that's the day you're going to be replaced because complacency cultivates mediocrity. Absolutely. And he said, if there's one thing that you can do as a service to your audience, always be auditioning. And when I think about that statement, I want to clarify it, always be auditioning in a way where you're not seeking validation. Like it's important that we validate ourselves, but always be auditioning with the discipline we put into any interview you're going to do. 
-hmm. Someone might be seeing you for the very first time. Mm -hmm. Any presentation you're going to give, someone might have no introduction to the message whatsoever, but do the service, do them justice and give them the best of you as if it's the first time you're relaying that message. Mm -hmm. And that always stuck with me that in any conversation, yeah, you always be auditioning. Think about the, the best questions you can ask, the emotion you can connect to, the empathetic curiosity and listening you can give to somebody to understand them and unlock their truth. Mm -hmm. These mm. are the simple things we can do that no matter how fast we're moving, we can slow it down. Mm -hmm. We can control the space we're in and we can control the, the, the beautiful gift of attention, undivided attention we can give to the person in front of us. Man, this is just incredibly powerful, man. Um, yeah, I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm believer that complacency paralyzes the mind and complacency kills. And I just love how you just elegantly laid that out there. I do have two more questions because I'm going to be very conscious of your time here. Um, the tombstone question. The tombstone question is the day we meet the maker and we're laid to rest six feet under, uh, we won't decide what's put on our tombstone. Someone else will. What will be on your tombstone? I, I think I would go with simplicity with two words. Thank you. Hmm. Just thank you. You know, there, there's, a, there's a clip going around right now that in the past month, I would say, you know, as we record this, this is halftime for 2021. Mm -hmm. It's June 30th, 2021. And I'm a guy that does a lot of reflection that I didn't necessarily do when I was waking up doing a live TV show. I really wanted to get intentional with how I reflect, how I write, and how I practice this art of gratitude. Mm -hmm. You know, there was one, one of the studies I talk about in the book is that if we can write down three things we're grateful for every single day for 21 days straight, it makes our brain, it makes our mind more optimistic for up to six months. And this clip that's gone viral was a performance by this artist known as Nightbird on America's Got Talent. Yes. Have you seen this performance? Oh, man, I, I teared up, man. And just uh, her, her, her song, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was just so powerful. That was um, very, very powerful and inspiring. Yeah, like it, it, you, you can YouTube this clip. It's seven minutes. Uh, it, it, last check, it had 25 million views, but she said something and she's living with cancer, 2% chance of survival, but she said something that just resonated with me. And I just felt like we all needed to hear it after everything we've been through in the past year that you can't wait until uh, things stop being difficult before you decide to be happy. Yeah. And that it was so powerful. And I said to my wife, I was having an off week and I was kind of struggling is this, this is a new identity for me as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I, I've been spoiled by the riches of a mainstream platform and now putting a message out there, consistently hustling, working on my mindset, staying consistent with the discipline. It was a week where uh, I was off and I was missing that energy. And I heard her say that. And I just said, I'm like, I needed to hear that this week. And it reminded me, we live this glorious life. I said this to my wife. Yeah. And when I think about the tombstone, when I think about it's over, if it was over tomorrow, Mark, it's just two words, man. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's been no. an amazing journey. There's been so many risks taken, but I'm grateful for it all, the highs and the lows. Mm -hmm. So I would just put those two on there. Yeah, no, that's powerful, man. I just love it. You know, um, so Tim, has, has walked me through a lot of things. And he says to me, you have to fill in the gaps with grace. Grace has to fill in the gaps. And if you do that, and, you know, and I think Brene Brown talks about that with joy, finding joy and joy comes from gratitude. Um, mm. And it, it's, it's, and that's one thing I tell myself every morning, every night, just what is no matter how hard life is, you got to push even farther to find out what you have to be grateful for. Yeah, man. Like yeah. you mentioned Brene, the first time I ever saw Brene, World Domination Summit, Portland, Oregon, 2012. She's wow. the opening speaker. This is before she blew up. Sure. I didn't know who she was, yeah. but she brought this realness to the stage. And I was in the point of my life, I'd gone through a breakup and I was very guarded. Like the breakup for me, I'm like, I didn't treat this person well. And then it was too late. Like, I respect this woman that she just had enough. And she's just like, you're not opening up to me. Mm -hmm. And on that stage, Brene shared something that it just blew my mind. And she said, 
when you lose your capacity for vulnerability, your joy becomes foreboding. And that line, it was one of those moments again, where I was so grateful. I'm like, I needed to hear this because I realized I wasn't being vulnerable with people at the time. I was protecting myself because I had been heartbroken before. I didn't want it to happen again. How do you expect to have any uh, fulfillment in the moment if you don't open yourself up to the entire experience? Mm -hmm. so, so, so these moments that we have, sure, that involves embracing rejection and being okay with that. I mean, when you work in media, you got to be okay with the fact that one, you, you're going to apply for things and people are going to tell you, no, your hair is too gray. That's not going to work. You're going to be rejected from the most ridiculous things, or you're going to say something and you're never going to have hundred percent approval and people are going to challenge you for it. Mm -hmm. But you know, our curiosity is a huge act of vulnerability to, to, to have the courage to ask some questions sometimes when it might be difficult. So, you know, these moments and opportunities we have with our conversations, uh, yeah, and they're really something right now. Like it's, it's up to us to have the courage in these moments, have grace in the gaps, like you say, but, but not missing out on the moments because we're too guarded. Sure. No, absolutely. What's the best way for the audience to find you, to follow you. Of course, I'm ordering a shit ton of books. I'm going to send them out to, to some <laughs> Thanks, this, 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 like I said, this book is so freaking powerful. Um, and everybody, it's a must read. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the best way is just on the website, riazmegji.com. And I'll spell it out because my name has been butchered many a time in my life. <laughs> and I just want to make it as easy as possible. R-I-A-Z- M-E-G-H-J-I.com. Uh, there's, there's, you know, plenty of resources online of just how to connect, uh, how to present if you've got something big coming on, uh, you know, coming up and you want to share your message in powerful ways. But uh, uh, I'm curious if you read the book and you're listening to this and it serves you, reach out to me, let me know, because uh, the goal is this is the first of many. And it's, it's always, you know, one of the valuable questions that, that I've learned in this space Somebody, actually a few people have asked me, you know, how are book sales? How are book sales? And I smile and I think, is it really about book sales? Because to me, the most valuable question is, how is this book impacting people? Sure. And the question people ask me about how are book sales reminds me that we're a society that, that is so caught up in metrics. And mm -hmm. for example, look at social media. Yeah. But if we start asking the question, how is this book making a difference? What was useful for you? Uh, I think that's so much more valuable so that we can understand you with your podcast, myself as an author and a presenter, how we can serve people in bigger ways. So if you listen to this and this helped you, if you read the book and it helps you, reach out to me and let me know how it helped you and what was most useful. Awesome, Riaz. Riaz, thank you so much. Um, you just need to have a marksmith.com website. You'll be, <laughs> be fine. That's our inside joke. <laughs> but thanks again, man. Uh, this is absolutely uh, just powerful, man. And I just can't wait to, to send this to the masses. So thanks again for your time. Hey, man. Love your energy. Love your questions in this. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you.